This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. A good news story, really. Uh, Stelco's owners say that the revenue the company generated has increased by 25% in the first three months of this year. That's considering where this place was a year and a half or so ago. Incredible news. Marvin Ryder is with us, of course, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University to talk about this. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. How are you doing today? Glad to be here, Bill. Uh, Are you excited by this? Are you surprised by this? Uh, I'm not going to say surprised. I am excited, but let's just say cautiously so. Uh, Remember what we're comparing the first quarter of 2018 to the first quarter of 2017. And in 2017, this was a company under creditor protection with an uncertain future. So if I'm someone who's buying steel, I don't buy one lot of steel and then go away. I need an ongoing supplier. And I would have been reluctant in January of 2017 to buy steel from Stelco because you might not be around in six months. So they had lost sales because of that. Now that there's some certainty to their future, thanks to uh, Mr. Kestenbaum and others, uh, they're getting some of those customers back. So I'm very much heartened. That 25% increase is people returning to Stelco saying, we have trust in you. We believe you're going to be around. What I'm going to be curious about would actually be a year from now. Now that we have a year under Mr. Kestenbaum's belt in 2019, how is he able to grow that base? But this is really just the rebound, natural rebound after creditor protection. I, yeah, I know, but what was the phrase you've used before? Dead cat bounce. Yeah. Uh, and, and I hope that's not what this is, but you know, the, the, there's always going to be a little bit of life in that. But it's, in the long term, what are we concerned about is, uh, vis-a-vis viability? Well, let's just remember again that uh, Mr. Kestenbaum took charge basically on July 1st of last year. So his first order of business with all of the employees was to reestablish the credibility. In the second quarter report, which was for December, December 31st, there was an announcement there that they had been selling test batches of steel to American and Canadian purchasers, for instance, car companies, saying, okay, this is a sample of what we can now do now that I am in charge. And I think we're seeing, again, dividends on that. People took the test batch and the second quarter said, I like what you've got. Here's an order. Let's see some more. So I think, again, this is all, this is not a bad news story at all. This is a great news story. And, and maybe one other footnote to the story, not only are revenues up, but profits are up. This company made $8 million a year ago. This time they made $49 million. So again, shows you when you jettison all of that, uh, all of those liabilities, like the environmental liabilities, the pension liabilities, the debt liabilities, you've got a company that in its core is still profitable. So there's lots of great news here, but I I don't want to make it seem like a miracle because this should have happened for any company emerging from creditor protection. Was stability the biggest stumbling block? Well, it became, it became two things. So the stumbling block during credit protection were all these liabilities. This was a company laboring with nearly $3 billion in debt. Uh, we talk about this in the provincial election, the debt servicing mm-hmm. charges. So if I have $3 billion of debt, I'm paying $120, $150 million a year in interest payments. Uh, I've got those pension obligations. I've also got the environmental concerns. And that was just an awful lot of overhead for this company to be carrying forward. It masked, if you will, the performance underneath it all. Mr. Kestenbaum felt it was a profitable company if if he could get rid of all of that overhead, and he's been successful in doing that. So I give him, again, all the credit in the world. Uh, the question is, can he keep the momentum going? Now, his argument in today's paper, and I had not seen it till this morning, was that he thought he actually could have sold more in the first quarter of this year, except there's a truck driver shortage. Yeah, I want to talk about that. That's I, rather I, I, was not, I was not aware that that was a big problem. I thought there were a lot of trucking companies ready to, to give you a business. But, you know, I'll take him at his word. He's closer to it than I am. 
So I hope this will continue into the, the next quarter. And then, with a year under their belt, we'll then be able to compare year-over-year performance with the Kestenbaum team. I want to talk about the transportation of goods then, which, which is interesting. And I know that he referred to that uh, as he was talking to the shareholders in the media about what was going on here. I think what it did is it underscored what an ideal location Hamilton is to do business. Uh, because, okay, the, the road truck transportation is a bit of a problem right now, but hey, we've got other options right up the street here. Right. So he pointed out that, uh, now let's also keep in mind that much of the steel they're shipping isn't from Hamilton, but down in Nanticoke. Yeah. But he pointed out that he has a lot of things at his disposal. He's got trains that he can use. He's got boats that he can use, at least when the Great Lakes are free of ice. He's got trucks as well. So he's got a, a myriad range of things that he can, can use. I'll even say this, Bill. I think, remember, this is a man who took over this company nine and a half, ten months ago. He's had to learn this. This isn't his home. He he wasn't quite aware of what Southern Ontario had as at disposal. So he's also been learning what's here. He's used to doing business in the United States, which is probably more of a truck-based economy. Uh, probably hasn't operated anything that's on the Great Lakes and therefore had boats available to them. So he's on a learning curve as well. But everything here points to, to good news. I'm just hesitant to call it uh, you know, spectacular news because I need to see something sustainable after that first year. I'm kind of surprised, and I don't want to get your read on, on how they actually marketed this and got those out there. As you say, they sent little test packages out. I guess it's sort of like akin to walking up and down the, the rows in, in Costco, you know, and they say, hey, try this, and if you like it, you're going to buy, go down there, you know, and buy a box of it. And they basically did that. They didn't wait for the phone to ring here. No. So we, we often describe this as missionary selling, meaning that I'm going to send a salesperson out into the market to go talk to a potential customer. Oftentimes, these were customers that Stelco had once before, but had lost, lost because of the uncertainty around mm-hmm. its future. So the person knocks on the door, says, hi, I represent Stelco. You might remember us. Can I tell you our story? Can I tell you how we've come back from the edge of of oblivion almost? Uh, By the way, I brought with me some samples and and we can ship you some samples to try out because we really want your business. And I'm also sure that in in discussing, say, pricing on these issues, you sharpen your pencil a little bit. And, you know, if you're willing to take a chance on us, we're willing to give you a little something in return. And that's all part of the selling process. From a, a, a purchaser's standpoint, we love multiple suppliers. We love the ability to pit one supplier against another. So to have a reputable steel company back operating in the greater Hamilton area, able to turn out first quality product, that's, that's not a bad thing. And for a supplier standpoint, it gives me a chance to play one side against the middle. Now, what I said to Mark McNeil is uh, there are also some forces at play. Let's call them environmental forces that also it's not necessarily smooth sailing ahead. You remember this gentleman? I think he's, I think his name is Donald Trump. Yeah, I heard of him. Uh, he came out just a few days ago uh, saying that uh, if we don't have a NAFTA deal by June 1st, he's going to put 25% duties. This is the, not what Stelco wants to hear at all. Now, Mr. Kestenbaum in his telephone conversation tried to downplay that, saying that, well, only about 20 to 25% of steel today in, in his company, Stelco, is sold into the United States. And that's a true statement, except that in the future, the plan is to dramatically expand their American sales. They're selling to about as many Canadian companies as they can to really see growth continue. They've got to go into the States, and Mr. Trump can mess that up in a heartbeat. Similarly, you know, if there are these differential taxes, what does that mean? What what does it mean about other companies expanding? So there's still enough turbulence in the market that he's got his hands full keeping steering this company going forward. Well, and that's the point I was trying to make earlier. If stability is what they're looking for here right now, it's it's good to know that the company seems to be uh, 
on more solid ground than it was a year ago. Yep. That's that's a good news story. But the economic climate right now is 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 pretty troubling. Well, or it's far from certain. Let's put yeah. it that way. There's there's lots of wrinkles now. Uh, heaven forbid for me to, to make a past judgment on Mr. Trump, but I would say, generally speaking, Mr. Trump has proven to be more of a toothless tiger, at least when it comes to talking about Canada and Mexico. In other words, he threatens lots of different things, but he's actually not done all that much to us. The only country that he's hurt in any significant way is China, and China fired right back with tariffs of their own. So if, they, if you want a war, bring it on, Mr. Trump. But even with people like Australia, Brazil, Korea, Germany, France, you know, he's talked tough to all of them, but he's backed away many of these policies. And so I find him a very unpredictable person, and, and I, I I don't know if I should fear him or not. Maybe I should fear him because of his unpredictability. But in terms of the actual actions that he's taken, hasn't been all that bad so far. Yeah, but even the, the very thought of, of entertaining these things, the tariffs, yeah, uh, was basically based, as you mentioned to us a couple of months ago, based on a comment that Wilbur Ross made to him almost in passing. And, and they, I think they were literally passing each other in the hallway, going from one committee room to another. And he said, yeah, I think I'll run with this, without even thinking about the ramifications yeah, of it. That's fair enough. You know, I, I worry again that in this administration, what we do is we float lots of policy balloons. This is a very unusual for a president. Normally, it's the other way around. You do that all behind the scenes, sort out your policy, and then come out with one announcement and then stand behind it. This seems to be a president more willing to uh, float many different ideas. If something seems to fly, grab onto it. If it doesn't... Just I never said that at all. You're, you're misinterpreting me. So we'll have to see what he does. But if I'm Mr. Kestenbaum, this is, again, one advantage he has. The head office of Stelco is not in Hamilton. The head office in Stelco is in New York City. And when they need to, I'm sure they're going to wave that American flag if it's necessary. Well, that was the solution that we came up uh, under the Obama administration, wasn't it? Because this this Buy American thing started as a course of result. Well, that incarnation of it started as a result of the recession. Uh, and and they basically said, look at it. At that time, it was U.S. Steel, and they kind of said, well, okay, you guys got to pass because it's really an American slash Canadian company with the emphasis on American. Exactly. Well, the way Bed they got Bedrock's around it, in the same situation. Yeah, they got around it. U.S. Steel got around it by taking Canadian-made steel, bringing it to a plant, and quote unquote finishing it, doing something to it, and suddenly the Canadian steel became American <laughs> in the process. Mr. Kestenbaum doesn't have that angle to play because he doesn't have any other uh, steel p- companies, at least at the moment. Um, However, I think he is going to wave that flag, and he is connected. He, he is also have lots of industry connections and connections even to the White House. So I, I'm not worried about him getting through these turbid waters, but he's still going to have to negotiate. We're, we're happy that this is happening for a, a whole lot of reasons, but what kind of an impact is this having on the local economy? I mean, there aren't as many people working there as there used to be 15, 20, 25 years ago. I mean, a, 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 sh- a shutdown, a strike would cripple this city back in those days. Uh, but it, there still has to be some sort of an economic ripple, I would think. Yeah, and just to f- finish your thought about the strike, you might remember it wasn't that long ago that we'd had lockouts. We had lockouts yeah. down in Nanticoke, and then we had lockouts here in Hamilton, and if you had locked out employees in the 1950s or 60s, the, the city the city would have been on its knees. Instead, we had those lockouts, and, and other than those workers specifically, most people didn't notice it. That's how the Cana- the. Uh, uh, Hamilton economy has diversified. Bill, um, is there a benefit? Yes. I mean, certainly there's a benefit. There has been employment added down at the Nanticoke site as they produce more steel on a more uh, 24-hour type basis. So there's been some growth down there for sure. Um, on the other hand, it's not like they've hired 5,000 workers. Mm-hmm. And, and I, the bad news here, and this is the part of, again, Donald Trump's story about making America great again, 
We produce, let's use Tefasco as an example. Tefasco produces more steel than it ever has at any other time in its history with fewer workers, and that's because of technology. This is where most of the jobs have gone. They haven't gone to Mexico. They haven't gone to Alabama. They've gone to technology, and you're not going to get those jobs back. So some modest expansions, yes, uh, 50 employees, 75, 100 but not 7,500 or 10,000. So it's not a bad news story. And, and I think even if I'm Haldeman or if I'm Hamilton, to see that there's a future, there's a viable future, and, and still with the carrot dangling, with the carrot dangling, that maybe in Hamilton, Mr. Kestenbaum wants to restart the blast furnace. Uh, he's, he had the opportunity to have Infrastructure Ontario basically tear down smokestacks and infrastructure that weren't going to be used if you don't start up a blast furnace. And he said, well, wait a minute, let me take a look. He took a look, he sent somebody in, and then he spent some money. I think it was around $15 million to to um, stabilize, I guess is the word I'd want mm-hmm. to use, stabilize the infrastructure. Not necessarily rebuild it, but make sure it's not falling down, just to give me the options. So I, I'm still cautiously hopeful about all this. That well, would is be there the a real threshold price. that he's looking for, though? I, you know, I don't, I don't know the man. I don't quite know. See, I, I have believed for some time, Bill, that this is the first of a few acquisitions for Mr. Kestenbaum and Steel, and whether the next one might be Algoma or another company. And then he, that's his history. He buys companies, amalgamates them over a ten to fifteen year period, and then ultimately sells that emergent company. Until I see a second acquisition, I'm just not sure. And I think that too. Is it a primary steelmaker? Is it somebody? I don't know. And I think he wants to just keep his options open. There were some skeptics when this whole thing happened, and they said, Bedrock, you know, we, we want somebody who knows steel. Uh, Mr. Kessenbaum is uh, showing an awful lot of knowledge about an industry that he doesn't didn't at that point anyway seem to know a whole lot about. Yeah, and, and I, I probably said that as well, Bill, at the time, because his history was in something called silica metals. Um, but it, it turns out that he has an appreciation for <laughs> metal refining. He may not have had steel experience, but he had experience in related industries. It's a bit like, say, you were an aluminum smelter and that was your history and suddenly you come into steel. I'm rightfully a little skeptical. What do you know about steel? But on the other hand, it's not like you sold cars for a living or it wasn't that you were a restaurateur. You, there is transferable knowledge there and it's proven to be quite true here. He, I think the biggest thing about Mr. Kestenbaum is his desire to keep running this company with a minimum of, of obligations. In other words, he doesn't want to bring back a lot of debt. He doesn't want to get back into these environmental problems. He wants to keep that overhead off the books. And that's a very admirable thing to do. That's a great tip for any business person out there. The more you can operate with low overhead and keep those debt, other things off your books, the more flexibility you have during bad times. Well, one of the criticisms that Stelco has been, uh, I guess, guilty of, according to even some of the people that work there over the last 15, 20 years, is bad business practices. And it sounds as if he's reversing that trend. Yeah, I think that's quite true. And I think also as he brings in, remember, this was a company uh, uh, when it was under credit protection where the sales force were actually governed out of Pittsburgh. The U.S. Steel had its sales force there. They weren't locally, had, uh, they didn't have local salespeople. So first job he had was to hire and then train those salespeople to now tell the new Stelco story. And I think he's doing a great job that way. Marvin Ryder uh, from the DeGroote School of Business. Good day for Stelco. Good day for the economy. Thanks so much for coming in today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we uh, talked with uh, Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly, and it had to do with a Twitter exchange that went on, not between her and uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, but about her uh, with some tweets. Uh, A citizen had actually uh, tweeted the mayor about LRT and some of the comments that uh, Councillor Skelly had made about uh, the billion dollars. You know the history of that and the story behind it. 
And uh, the mayor responded, uh, saying what you know that he thought Ford's promise was folly. I'm paraphrasing, but that was essentially what uh, the mayor was talking about. But then he took a couple of shots at uh, at Councillor Skelly and said that well, she's just a rookie councillor, doesn't speak for council, uh, and she's actually running for provincial politics and doesn't much care for Hamilton. It was it was, it was a personal dig. It had nothing to do with policy or anything else. And uh, we talked about it. We talked about it with her. Now, she didn't take the bait. Even yesterday when I asked her on the program, uh, she didn't necessarily want to classify it as bullying, but she thought it, that it was bad behavior. Well, many of you did think it was bullying. Uh, in, this, in the responses, the phone calls we got, the emails and the tweets we got yesterday, uh, many of you thought the mayor was out of line. And here it is, just another example of a male politician picking on a female, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there's variations on that theme. Now, but I'm not trying to be dismissive of it because I think this is a real problem because we have to face some reality here. First of all, there is still very much a glass ceiling in, 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 in business and so many other disciplines when it comes to women and men. Uh, they, women still don't make as much uh, as men do doing the same job. Uh, I don't know that women get the same respect in corporations. We know that there are nearly as many women as there should be in boardrooms, et cetera. And I've heard stories about women in politics the very same way, that they, they, they get bullied, they get picked on, they get centered out from time to time, which is why some women tell me that, you know, I'm just, I don't want to go in there. I, I, don't want, I don't need that, that kind of aggravation. Is it a problem? Is it a concern? Is, is that why we don't see as many women running for public office and men sometimes leaving? I mean, there was an interesting story that I pulled out after our conversation yesterday uh, it was on the Burlington Post uh, website, uh, February, I guess it was. Uh, John Beekla w- wrote this, and it basically talking with a number of women politicians. And uh, the genesis for the uh, the piece was a, a social media tweet that uh, a, a, an MP for the area got. Uh, her name is Pam Damoff, and she's the uh, the MP for Oakville, North Burlington. Uh, and some very derogatory comments on social media about her. Uh, some would even call it, characterize them as threatening. So he decided to do some exploring on this and talk to a number of other uh, female politicians who had similar stories about this and seem to suggest that, yeah, there is a concern here with bullying and with tactics, especially against women. I want to talk to Christo Avalos about the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. He's a postdoctoral fellow at uh, the University of Toronto. Christo, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Every time we have a, a, a an election, a federal, provincial election, I guess even municipal, and we've got two of them coming up later on this year, of course, we we tend to have this discussion at some point during that time. Why aren't more women running, slash, why aren't more women uh, being elected to public office? And when we hear stories like this, that, that may actually provide part of the answer. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for, like, the systemic barriers. As you know, uh, if women are, you know, paid less, if women have less positions of power outside of politics, it might be harder to get elected because, you know, if you're not the powerful business person or if you don't have, you know, this prestigious job, then voters might overlook you. Um, but I think a lot of the, the you know, the, a, lot, a lot of people might forget about the, the intangible things, which are these kind of uh, harassment issues that women face day to day and that women face at levels that men don't. And even in, in journalism as well, you know, um, Men who cover controversial topics will be will be critiqued less than than women, and that kind of thing can wear on people um, and might uh, limit one's desire to to be a politician. Well, uh, case in point, uh, as you mentioned, well, we, we can use the example of journalists. Uh, I, I know a lot. You know a lot of journalists over the years that are covering politics, for instance. 
and they can be aggressive because they're trying to seek the truth, and, and an awful lot of politicians would rather just spin their, their talking points. Uh, but when a, a male politician uh, is faced with a male journalist, invariably they recollect that as, as a foe. There may be some comments, but I, I'll, I'll reference the point that Doug Ford made about a female journalist uh, a couple of, where he ended up calling her the B-word, uh, which, which again is a derogatory expression about somebody who's trying to do the same job that a male is. Yet there seems to be a different attitude toward There's a certain misogyny that seems to still exist. I don't know if it's prevalent, but it's certainly there. I mean, yeah, and if you look at a lot of prominent female politicians, really from, from all three major political parties, I mean, you have Rachel Notley who gets attacked, uh, you know, for her policy, certainly, but in a way that it's always, you know, seems to be intertwined with her gender. I mean, you know, Kathleen Wynne and even Andrea Horwath get attacks like that here in Ontario, uh, you know, frequently. Um, and even if you think back to the, you know, recent past, Belinda Stronick, you know, the cartoon of her as a prostitute uh, when she crossed the floor. I mean, you know, a lot of people have problems with floor crossings, but, you know, what, you know it's not a coincidence that as a, as a relatively young woman that her crossing the floor was made akin to being a sex worker. Um, and I think that that's certainly something that, that I, I don't think one can deny that, you know, there it's not that these women are being attacked solely because of their gender. It's that the attacks are often, you know, intensified with the language or rhetoric or, you know, of misogyny. Well, and, and the, the Belinda Stronach case, I think, is, is, is a very germane to this discussion. Uh, I mean, she was also characterized essentially as a dumb blonde uh, who only got there because of her daddy. I mean, she's a very smart woman and is doing a very fine job in business and, and obviously very successful in business. Uh, her political career is is obviously up for debate, as everybody's is. I guess that's really, I guess, within the eye of the beholder. But they they wanted to, to just characterize her and label her uh, because of that. And it, you're right, uh, whether or not misogyny is the reason for it, misogyny seems to certainly enter into the description that people would want to use against people like that. No, certainly. And I mean, you know, with, to, to be fair, I mean, you know, it is a it is a well uh, you know a, a well worn tactic in politics to to, you know, look at someone as kind of being privileged and out of touch. It's been, that's been used against men. It's been used against Justin Trudeau. Uh, and, you know, I think, to be fair, there is something to be said for, you know, the children of the wealthy, the children of the powerful, having positions that they may not have earned. People who um, thought they hit a triple, but they started on third. And I think that applies to Stronach. I think that applies to Trudeau to a certain extent. But, you know, again, when Trudeau's attacked, it just, it doesn't have that same kind of bite, I feel. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's something I, I, I feel on that, uh, just kind of as an analyst. There, are, I, I know the, there's a big deal made about the fact that Trudeau obviously put uh, half of the, his cabinet as, as females, and, and that made headlines, obviously, because it's it, 2015. We, we get that headline and everything. But have they really advanced that much? I mean, there may be more in, in higher positions when it comes to political life and political positions right now. But but what about the respect level? What about the the equal playing field? I mean, are are, are they uh, are they quicker to criticize women, uh, and and maybe as a result to 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 you know be dismissive of women in, in higher positions like that? Well, you know, you know, Trudeau's Trudeau's cabinet promise is you know significant, as is some other. You know, the NDP in Ontario has a caucus that is that has gender parity basically, and the BC government's caucus has you know gender parity. One of the things you can kind of Trudeau was critiqued on is that of a lot of the really, really top positions, they were still mostly filled with men. And it seems like Trudeau put women in a lot of his, his very 
uh, difficult profiles like electoral reform, which, you know, from my personal perspective, was designed to fail and was, I think, perhaps not coincidentally, um, filled with two young female MPs to kind of take the hits on that issue. So a lot of people have talked about this concept of the glass cliff in business and in politics where, you know, when, when there's a, a company will put a woman or maybe a person of color uh, in a top position, uh, and then that when that person fails, they'll say, okay, well, we've done the diversity hire, and then they'll hire, you know, uh, a, a white guy again. And, you know, that, that could be a thing in politics. But as you note, even beyond that, you know, beyond the formal barriers, there are still the kind of cultural barriers. And this goes all the way back to, to Agnes McPhail, in a sense, about, you know, the first female MP and how media covered her, how the public saw her. And obviously it's different now, but, you know, the it, it, it's, not, it's not as different as we would like it to be. Well, and you're absolutely right about, for instance, the electoral reform with Minister Monsef, who obviously took a big fall when, when that whole thing fell apart and, and took all the heat for it. And, and I don't think it was justified, but that's what happened. But we saw the same thing happen with the first Harper government uh, back in 2006. I mean, Ronna Ambrose was entrusted with the, I think it was the Environment Ministry, uh, did not do well, got an awful lot of criticism. They were like, well, is she really qualified to do this? And he ended up getting taken off that position. John Baird took her place in that that role. It's almost as if, okay, we've tried putting Oman in there. Now let's put a guy in there and do something else. It just seems to me as if there's, it's a much shorter string. I mean, you're going you're gonna to have ups and downs in political life no matter who you are and what position you are. But it just seems as if they're ready to just pull the, the rope out from under somebody if it's a female a lot sooner than they would if it was a male. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like that is the, the kind of concept, you know, because you note the glass ceiling, it's the, the concept that, you know, women can rise to a lot of middling positions now, a lot of people of marginalized backgrounds, you know, this isn't the, the 1950s in a sense, but in terms of the positions of the most prestige and power and, and wealth, there's, you know, an inability to break through. And this glass cliff context is that, you know, often, you know, women and, and, and minorities will be put in a position to fail, and then when their their failures used to justify the 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 you know ineffectiveness of equity hiring and and policies like that. And again, you know, Trudeau's cabinet is uh, you know uh, half uh, gendered fifty fifty. But you know, the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party don't have the kind of same equity policies that say the New Democrats have, which is to kind of uh, really have a kind of stated goal of of having fifty percent of their candidates be women. And then have the stated goal that you know they won't proceed with a nomination race uh, without an equity candidate unless the party at the local level can demonstrate you know real due diligence about about finding a diverse candidate, be it a woman or uh, you know a, a, a person of color, person with disabilities. And I feel like that in that sense, there still needs to be work from from all of the parties. But but the you know the governing party is is maybe. Uh, has a lot more work to do specifically. You know, there's another element to this that, that I think we need to cover too, Christo, and that's 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 the, the the attitude within the political system itself. But the outsiders, the, the you, me, the public that that look at this, and and I guess the 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 factor here that we need to consider here is social media. And and I look at some of the social media posts against. Well, you brought Kathleen Wynne's name up a while ago. Uh, there's an awful lot, of course, to be concerned about and an awful lot to be critical about about her time as the premier. But some of the comments that you see from people that are posting on social media right now are nothing short of vile, personal attacks on her, not on the policies, but on her. And you don't see that so much against male politicians as you do against female. No, I would agree. I mean, you know, I'm sure that, you know, uh, you know, 
high-profile male politicians could will, will, will get will get vile comments, but I think it's the, the proportion, and I feel that you know this is something that are happening to women from all political parties. Um, it really is, you know, sadly, one of the most universally non uh, you know nonpartisan activities, which is that uh, female politicians on on Twitter on Facebook you get a lot of harassing uh, comments. And it's, it's a, it creates a very interesting scenario here because especially for elected MPs, I mean, these women in no way should have to face these harassments, but they're also public figures and they need to kind of be, you know, uh, reached by their constituents, by the public. And I think a lot of people are taking advantage of that reality that these, these, these women are public figures, liberal, conservative, NDP, green, what have you, and that, you know, they're being attacked um, you know, for uh, in a, in a manner that that has little to do with the policy, or that starts tangentially with the policy and ends up being, you know, about their looks, about uh, you know them being the B word or what have you, or uh, them not acting in a conduct that people think women should act. Uh, and I feel like that in social media, as you noted, has created a real access to politicians, which I think is great in a lot of ways, but. This is a, a consequence that we haven't learned to deal with as a society. Absolutely. Christo, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Christo Avalos, of course, uh, from University of Toronto. I want to bring Eleanor McMahon into the conversation, the MPP for Burlington. She's also the minister responsible for digital government and uh, president of the uh, Treasury Board. Eleanor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Hi, Bill. What an interesting topic. Well, you know, we had a, I, what many people thought, a, a, another example of this yesterday with some tweets that were going back and forth between uh, Donna Skelly, a female counselor here in Hamilton, of course, and the mayor. Uh, I don't know if it would categorize that, but it certainly had all the earmarkings of, of, of bullying, which is what an awful lot of our listeners thought. And I know there was a piece in the Burlington Post a few months ago. I want to relate your experience with this, and, and we were talking about the, there's two prongs to this, I guess, within the system itself and, of course, the public and their view of, of females in political life. Uh, you, you've nailed it. I think it's, it's, it's both uh, sides of the coin, Bill. It's, it's how we experience it in terms of our day-to-day -day interactions and how the public sees us, and, and so maybe I'll just start there. And you did mention the Premier. I, I wouldn't mind a little bit of airtime on that, too, because it's, it's most discouraging what we see against our Premier. And uh, something I bemoan constantly, Bill, which is I started my, my career on Parliament Hill, worked for two prime ministers at a time when the public discourse was different, and it was attack the ideas, not the person, Bill. And you and I are of a certain age, and I think we've watched the political discourse migrate from that and to become much more personal and much more partisan, which is not only unproductive, it distances people from the very public institutions that are there to serve them in ways that are very destructive. And so it's, it's a, a reason why a lot of people don't get into public life, Bill, and a lot of reason why a lot of women don't get into public life. Well, I'm so, going to give you an example of this, and because and, uh, mm -hmm. I've, I've known women that have served provincially and federally and yeah. and and the ones i'm going to refer to now i'm not going to give names but i mean they're no longer there uh but they have told me that they were disgusted by some of the comments they would hear during question period as the house was sitting not all of these things make answered by the way this is some of the stuff that gets no. yelled over the aisle yes. and it's yes. vile and it's personal yes. and it's misogynist uh, yep. And and often, more often than not, speakers don't tend to do a whole lot about this, and they just feel as if what? Why is this going on? Why is this allowed to happen? Well, you know, you know, feelings run really, really high, Bill, in, in this kind of arena. You put people in a room with a closed roof, and you're in between the four walls, and you turn up the heat. 
and it's become much more partisan. I'll give you an example. I was talking to one of my colleagues across the aisle. You know I came to public life late in life. I've had a career in lots of other arenas, which is why I find what so much of what goes on in terms of our political discourse so distressing and so unnecessary and unproductive. I'm less of a partisan person, more of a practical one, and so it, I find this uh, sort of discourse so destructive. I was having a chat with one of my colleagues on the, uh, uh, in the opposition, the MDP benches, because you probably know I came from Windsor. Mm-hmm. My dad was an auto worker. I worked for Herb Gray, uh, who was a gentle soul and uh, one of the best politicians in Canada, in my opinion, and, and a great Canadian. Um, and watching Herb navigate um, uh, the opposition politics that were around him in the conversations with the NDP, he had great relationships. They got things done. We worked productively well and together. And, and that was a model for me. And during question period, here's the thing. Herb was the House leader. We used to actually, Bill, give our questions to the government before question period. And here, it sounds like a trivial thing, but here's what happened. First of all, it made the discourse in the House much more productive and less gotcha. So there are some members, to be fair, who will come across to you and say, I'm going to ask you a question today. And it just makes the response and the, and the debate, doesn't make it any less fierce. doesn't mean that I don't expect people to hold me to account, Bill. But it makes it much more productive, less personal, it's less gotcha, and it allows me to stand up and breathe and give an answer. And then the member opposite can say to the press after, well, I let her, gave her a heads up and I told her I was going to ask her a question. So I can't say that I was shocked, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'd like and I said to my colleague on the, on, the, uh, on the opposite aisle, I really like it. I said if you and I get back, that we develop a, a, a working group amongst all parties and we come to some kind of agreement that we're going to do this, because I think it would make the behavior in the house. And you know, in the Quebec legislature bill, they've just changed this. There's no more heckling. There's no more pounding of the desk. Uh, they have a very orderly question period. They have banned all that kind of behavior. Well, I, I kind of like the model you know, they use in the British Parliament, where they don't have desks at all. All. And it, there's a little more civility there. Uh, I wish we could carry this on, and actually, I'd like to it for another day to because there's sure. an awful lot more we need to discuss on this. But I, I really do appreciate you jumping in for a few minutes, Eleanor, to, to give us your perspective on this. Thanks so much. Anytime, happy to do it. Take care, Bill. You betcha, Eleanor McMahon, of course, uh, the president of the Treasury Board and uh, the MPP for Burlington. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML. Some terrible pictures about what's been happening in New Brunswick over the last couple of days. I mean, come springtime, we always hear stories about flooding uh, in various areas. We've had some small examples, and I mean, especially by comparison, small examples of what's happened. Uh, Last year, of course, it was horrific down through Toronto and many other areas. Uh, Invariably, you'll always see flooding around uh, Manitoba, around the Red River. But this time, the focus is on the East Coast, and it's happening around New Brunswick. And the situation in New Brunswick has reached the point now where the Trans-Canada Highway is actually closed between Fredericton and Moncton. And uh, for those who have not traveled that road or been in that area, that's about a two-hour drive. That's a big stretch of road that's now closed. Morgan Campbell has been covering the story. Video journalist with Global News joins us here on the Bill Keller Show. Morgan, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Give me an, uh, just uh, be our eyes for a second, Morgan. Explain to us what you've seen, and, 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 and this is so unusual. I mean, we've, we've seen stories of flooding before, but the magnitude, and I know people in New Brunswick have experienced it before, but never to this magnitude. No, it's, it's honestly like the St. John River just is everywhere. I mean, <laughs> it has overflowed into people's properties. It's, 
it's across roads. And when I when I say it's it's flooding roads, I don't mean like you know a few inches. I mean a, a few feet. You can't drive through it whatsoever. I mean people have so many sand, hundreds, if not thousands of sandbags. The worst has to be you know people actually building berms around their house, using excavators to build berms. I mean, what it's going to be like when it's time to clean up after this is, is just going to be such a tough job because there's so much sand everywhere. All the people are, are trying to get, you know, everything safe up to high ground, and, and it just keeps getting worse every single day. The, the water levels keep going up. We've got more rain in the forecast, and it's to the point where people are just exhausted. They're exhausted, and, and they're just waiting for some type of relief. We might see it on Sunday, um, but for the next, you know, 48 hours, people are still just going to have to chug along. How are people responding to this? Invariably, Morgan, when this happened in the past, people, well, some people obviously will leave, uh, but others simply said, well, I'm going to ride this out. Okay, there'll be some water in the basement or something. But this, as you said, this isn't, a, from what we're told, not even the worst of it yet. Well, you know what, Bill? It's it's funny you ask that question because I'm actually from Ontario, and this is my first flooding experience in New Brunswick, and I am absolutely blown away at the number of people who are staying in their homes. And I'm not talking a few inches of water in the basement here. We're saying we're we're talking feet. We're talking you step down the first step of somebody's basement, and the water is is almost to the ceiling. And people are continuing to stay in their houses. I mean, there are some people who are very stubborn and they don't want to go. There are others who, who have evacuated. We're looking at those numbers. They fluctuate daily. We're looking at about 2,000 people. Those are more voluntary evacuations. But people on the East Coast are different. They're resilient. They are so resilient. They've banded, you know, together and they're, they're, they're helping neighbors and, they're doing what they can. They don't want to leave their homes. Then, you know, on the other side of the coin, you have the people who are legitimately scared. Today, I, um, I crossed over into an area called Dominion Park, and I met an elderly woman who, you know, she was just talking to me, and she just broke down, and she just started crying. And she said, I have sewage backing up into my basement. My cat is inside the house. I'm scared. And she just kept crying, saying how scared she was. And it really, really puts it into perspective here. I mean, these are people's homes. These are people's livelihoods. I mean, people are losing things. People are, they're losing stuff, but, but then they're coming together in this, in this beautiful, beautiful way. I mean, people keep joking, oh, this is just the maritime way. But the amount of support, you have people coming from way, way up north, northern parts of New Brunswick, flocking down to the Fredericton area, to the St. John area, with their hands out saying, how can I help? How can I help? You have businesses who are donating time, uh, resources, food, drinks, I mean, sand. You've got uh, fishing boats that are being donated to help with rescue efforts. I have never seen a province come together the way that they have with this flood bill. And we've seen flooding in the past, and we've had it here in, in, in the southern Ontario area. I can remember this is probably years ago, I guess, around, uh, when the Grand River overflowed here in southern Ontario. And I can remember Cambridge, and there's a, a classic shot of a police officer who's allegedly directing traffic, but he was up to his waist in water. Uh, it was boat traffic that he was directing, mm-hmm. and this was on a main street in Cambridge. Uh, and, and I'm seeing some of the pictures here. I mean, they're talking about six and a half meters uh, above uh, ordinary levels right now. I mean, that that's higher than I think they've seen in, what, the last 80 or 90 years? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's the highest since 1973. Now, they did have quite a bad flood in 2008, but we've surpassed uh, the 1973 levels. Um, and, you know, they're saying that they it could continue to rise, you know, Sunday, Monday. And there's more rain in the forecast. I mean, so it really, for these people, it, it's quite disheartening because it, it's, it's almost, Bill, like it started slowly. You know, we got the warnings. I think I started doing my first flood story last Sunday. And then it slowly, 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 and then bam. It was just, there's just so much water. And, and it was almost like it happened overnight. When they it, it when was, when you started the reporting, remarkable. when you started that reporting over almost a week ago, did, did, did was there any expectation that it was going to be this bad? No, no, not once, not ever, not ever. I mean, we thought that you know, obviously, some people in those low lying areas would have to sandbag, but uh, I don't think that it ever really crossed anyone's minds that you know that the evacuations would be what they are, and it's so far reaching. I mean, we're talking from Fredericton down the St. John River to, to St. John. You've got the Trans-Canada Highway that's closed now, so there is no travel between Fredericton and Moncton. It's having a huge impact on the trucking industry because the detour is hours long. You know, what should take probably an hour and 45 minutes will take people between three and four, if not longer, depending on traffic. So this is, this is something that's far-reaching. It, it's affecting people who don't live in these flood areas. Um, then you have the little tiny towns uh, along the river, you know, Majorville. All the cattle in Majorville are now at the Fredericton uh, exhibition right now because literally that whole little village is, is has just been engulfed in water. You know, you've got Gemseg, the same type of thing. It's it's uh, it's tough. It's it's tough to see because some of these images I, I've been telling people uh, back in Ontario. The pictures almost don't do it justice. It's, you know, they say a picture can can it can say a thousand words, but the pictures here, I mean, almost don't even do it justice. It's crazy. The uh, premier were told Premier Gallant has enlisted the help of the Ghost Card. I assume that's for rescue missions. Yeah, he'll. Uh, they will be assisting um, with uh, with the fire departments and whatnot. Premier Gallant actually, he's been he's been pretty front and center in this. Um, He's uh, he was actually out sandbagging people's homes yesterday and uh, and taking out furniture. He has said that he's been in talks with Justin Trudeau about um, you know enlisting the help uh, from the military if needed. At this point, we're not quite there yet, um, but Trudeau has reassured uh, New Brunswick that uh, if the help is required, the help will be there. We also haven't declared um, a, a disaster uh, just quite yet. Um, mainly, uh, I guess, uh, the officials with EMO are saying that we don't quite meet the criteria just yet. So, Morgan, you've done some great reporting on this. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time to spend with us today to uh, paint a picture for us. Really appreciate it. And uh, stay safe, okay? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Bill. Okay, great talking with you. Morgan Campbell, video journalist with Global News, who's on the scene in New Brunswick. Uh, Jeffrey Downey is uh, with the New Brunswick Emergency Measures Organization uh, to give us some insight as to how they've been trying to handle this. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for the time. It's great you could spend a few minutes with us here today. Not at all. Thank you. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this. I mean, and you, you knew this was going to happen springtime, and of course rivers tend to overflow this time of year. Uh, but as uh, Morgan was just telling us, uh, you haven't seen anything like this for a long, long time. You knew it was happening, but you didn't know the magnitude. How do you handle that? 
It, it's hard. I mean, the difficulty is uh, we're in uncharted territory. Um, we can't simply can't count on past experience to guide us through this. Um, so we're mobilizing all the resources we can. Um, we do have lots of experience uh, addressing these kinds of situations, however, uh, but you know, necessarily specifics about where the water will reach, what roads might close, which bridges might close. Um, we're reacting as we go along, but uh, we're doing a great job doing right now. How many hands do you need on this? I mean, do you battle this with sandbagging? Is that an effective... Uh, I mean, that's you're playing defense, it seems, an awful lot of the time because you don't know where the water's going to go or how high it's going to be. That's exactly right. Um, you know, people who have never had to think about maybe sandbagging their homes or moving everything out of their basement are in that position right now. Um, so, again, you just have to count on uh, past experience in terms of knowing uh, what maybe your neighbors have had to do. Uh, and lean on them. But, uh, you know, there's uh, hundreds of thousands of sandbags out there, uh, you know, countless tons of sand being piled into them. Um, the resources are being uh, delivered to people to uh, address the situation. But what we're hoping people also do is consider evacuation. Um, that is really the, uh, the safest course of action for people. Uh, the floodwaters, for example, in Fredericton have been well over flood stage now for more than a week. Um, we usually urge people to have 72-hour preparedness kits, but, for example, in Fredericton, that uh, 72-hour preparedness kit would have run out days ago. So we're, uh, we're hoping people in St. John and other places along the St. John River right now will uh, evacuate and uh, get, to, get to higher ground. But that's only suggesting at this stage. There are no areas where there is mandatory evacuation, are there? There are no mandatory evacuations at this point. Uh, we're hoping people will err on the side of caution and uh, and seek uh, seek safer ground. Uh, they're resilient people uh, in New Brunswick, fabulous people, and, and as we've said, they've, they've experienced this before, not to this magnitude necessarily. How are they handling it? Uh, very well. Um, you know, it, it has been ongoing in other parts of the province now for more than a week, uh, and, you know, everyone's tired. Um, residents, uh, emergency, emergency responders, uh, but everyone's holding up well, and I think it, the, the, the sign that it is holding up is we still get messages every day about people asking how they can help. Um, whether it's, you know, it's corporate citizens asking where they can donate sandbags, um, or people saying, hey, where am I needed? Where can I go to fill sandbags? Um, where can I go to deliver food? Um, you know, where can I go and just help? But you've got a plan. I mean, you know, that's, that's your job, obviously, emergency measures. Uh, you know, where there are places for people to go. I mean, if they need food, okay, we've got this. I mean, that's that's sitting in your drawer all, all winter long, anticipating that something like this is going to happen. So it's really a matter of enacting that. Absolutely. Um, you know, NBEMO is a coordination agency. Uh, we were working with our partners well before the flood started, uh, because this time of year, New Brunswick floods. Uh, so, you know, for example, with the Red Cross, there are shelters set up uh, in Fredericton and St. John, uh, reception centers. Um, the Red Cross has already been mobilizing uh, flood cleaning kits for, uh, you know, when the water finally does drop. Um, you know, this, this is a final exam of sorts, and, you know, NBEMO and its partners have, uh, have done their homework leading up to this. I, I suggested that it's sitting on somebody's desk over the winter. Considering the amount of snow you guys get in the winter, you've got emergency services plans for that, too. I wasn't going to suggest that you're sitting oh, no. with your feet up on the desk. I mean, oh, no, th no. Th this happens, and obviously that's what you guys do. Uh, and, the, and the locals, the residents there, are obviously prepared for this, and they understand what's going on. Uh, do you need more hands? I, I've had a, more than a couple of people suggest, as they've seen the pictures over the last couple of days, Jeff, to say, why hasn't the Army been called out? And they, they use the example, of course, of, of the Red River flooding in Manitoba, where the, in, there have been a couple of instances over the years now where the Army's gone in there to help out. Mm -hmm. 
you can only call on resources like that at the federal level once you can uh, once you've exhausted your own resources. Um, it's not simply a case of you know a little extra help would be nice. Uh, it doesn't work like that. You have to show all your resources have been exhausted or you don't have the resource, uh, like, for example, a particular piece of equipment uh, to solve a problem. If we hit that stage, um, we're more than ready to, uh, to, to discuss that with the military. Um, they've been well apprised. Base Gagetown is ready to help out if needed. But uh, our resources are holding up, and um, right now we, we simply don't need that help. On a, on a basis here, just in, in our mind's eye, as we look at a, a map of, of New Brunswick, how much of the, the province is being affected by this? Uh, every, well, <laughs> I was going to say everywhere along the St. John River, but it's really the, Saint, uh, the, uh, the river systems in general. Yeah. It is from north to south, literally. Um, the north is now coming out of it for the most part. Uh, most spots are below flood level up there, uh, but it's been moving south. So, I mean, essentially everything from Fredericton on down, is uh, is pat well past flood stage. What's the uh, the weather forecast for the next while? Uh, the weather forecast is a little hit and miss. Uh, we've got some rain in the forecast today, uh, but uh, not so much in the next couple days. And the temperature is supposed to get a little cooler, which helps us out as well, because uh, what's driving this right now is uh, rain and snow in the north. <laughs> Uh, there's still snow in the woods up north, and that's why um, you know the, the river hasn't gotten down. It's why Fredericton's been at eight meters now for more than a week. Well, we certainly hope the, the rain stops. You hurts the waters to subside, but uh, then of course comes the next part of this, which is going to be the, uh, I guess, the cleanup and, and the recovery. Yeah, the recovery stage is going to be um, an immense project. Uh, the provincial government has already announced it's launched a disaster financial assistance program, uh, so that will be uh, a lot of help for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, it's unprecedented flooding. Um, it is going to require a lot of time and a lot of effort on everyone's part. So just because, um, you know, maybe next week or so uh, the water's down, uh, the job's not over for anyone. Absolutely not. Uh, for the residents and, I guess, an insurance adjuster's nightmare, and, and, and you guys, too, and the great staff that you've got. You, you've done great work on this, though. I just mentioned to uh, uh, Morgan Campbell, who's covering this for Global News out there, that uh, the, the pictures we're getting here are, are painting a, a picture of, of, of disaster, but at the same time of resilience. And I, I know that that's one of the, the foundation building blocks that you guys are using and, as you go forward. But uh, stay healthy and stay uh, safe, Jeff, and uh, continue good luck with this. I hope the worst is over. Well, we, we hope so, too. Thank you very much. Thanks again for your time today. Jeff Downey, New Brunswick Emergency Measures Organization, as they contend with even more flooding, uh, world flooding. This is just ridiculous, uh, record-setting flooding that they've had over there and the, uh, the impact that it's had on that community. Well, we don't even know the full extent of it yet, obviously, till the water subsides and we see what kind of damage has been done. But we've seen this happen in other jurisdictions across North America. And uh, our, our, our hearts are with them just as, as they try to get through all of this stuff. Uh, we'll keep you uh, posted as to further developments, of course, as soon as we find out. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.